Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Seven Sage LSAT podcast. My name is Henry Ewing, and of course, I am joined with my co-host, Asta Sinha. And today we are also joined by one of our Seven Sage tutors, who's currently a law school student. Chad, I'll let you kind of introduce yourself. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Chad. I'm one of the Seven Sage tutors, and I'm going to be starting my second year at Yale Law School in a few months. Super exciting. Chad has agreed to chat with us today about his LSAT experience, law school experience, everything in between. And we are super excited to have you. Thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. So, all right. Go ahead. Start us off. So, Chad, before we begin, I'd love to know a little bit more about your background. Is law school something you knew you wanted to do since a young age? I didn't come from a family of lawyers or anything like that. I grew up in rural West Michigan and with a, from a family of public servants. You know, no one in my family had graduated from college yet. So none of that really was on my mind. It wasn't until I was an undergrad and I did an internship with the Public Defender Service for the District of Columbia, which is where I'm working now. And I just kind of saw how awful our criminal justice system can be and how fulfilling public service work is within the law specifically. And ever since then, I, I kind of knew for sure that, you know, going to law school was something that was a dream of mine. Mm. Did, did you go to school in D.C.? No, no. I went to Harvard for undergrad. Tell me about Harvard. What was your experience like there? Yeah, so I was an English major there. I did a lot of journalism stuff. I think like a lot of folks who were sort of nascently interested in the law, I kind of meandered my way around the humanities and social sciences. And yeah, I had a great time. I didn't dedicate too much of my undergraduate experience to pre-law stuff. So for, you know, a lot of folks out there think that they need to do everything under the sun, you know, when it comes to doing pre-law kind of organizations in undergrad, but really I just focused on doing things that sparked my interest. And I don't know, I had a blast. College is the most fun <laughs> of my life. Not that I miss. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Was there, you said you didn't do a whole lot of like dedicated pre-law stuff, but was there anything you did do in undergrad that you thought was especially helpful for, you know, your time in law school so far? That's a great question. I mean, as all of my 2Ds know, like I, <laughs> I love, I loved studying English. I think you know, that's obviously a great way to prepare for things like, you know, reading analytical capabilities. But in terms of things I did, I think journalism is a, is a great, great thing to do. And we need good journalists is sort of anything that can allow you to practice how to write. Because when you get to law school, you know, a lot of it is just figuring out how to write succinctly and how to write clearly. Yeah. Absolutely. Hearing you say you went to D.C., to do an internship and you came back with a burning desire to do the law. How did your college experience change after that? Were you still mostly just focused on on English or what shifted once you decided that you knew you needed to go to law school? Yeah, so I think a lot of folks in the public defender space also have a lot of academic interests, of course, because, you know, at the end of the day, they're lawyers, so they're kind of nerdy. Who would have thought? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, for anyone with any sort of historical sensibility of American history, you know that the criminal justice system has very sort of tight linkages to slavery way back in the 1800s. And so that was that became sort of the locus of my interest in studies as well. I studied under a professor who was one of our preeminent Civil War, I guess, professors. And so a lot mm -hmm. of my academic interests started revolving around issues of racial justice and sort of the linkages between the history of racial injustice in America and the criminal justice system now. 
Yeah, it sounds like a lot more emphasis on really like the why you want to be a lawyer and focusing on and developing an interest in a relationship with your goal rather than just merely grinding things out in order to get into law school. At some point that had to change, though. Obviously, one <laughs> one step that needs to occur is the LSAT. Was that during your undergrad experience or, or did that happen afterwards when you started looking at the test? Yeah. So for me, I, I knew that the LSAT, or at least I'd heard that it was scary. And so I remained scared of it for quite some time. It wasn't until I'd, I'd worked for about six months after graduation. I was a paralegal at one of the big law firms. And yeah, it wasn't really until about six months after where I knew I could have a steadier work schedule and sort of fit it into my life a little bit. I think the undergraduate experience for me was just a little bit too chaotic to to fit the LSAT into. And, mm-hmm. you know, I know a lot of folks really feel eager to, and, you know, they're more than capable looking at you, Asta, maybe <laughs> as well, Henry. But yeah, Goodness. it just... It wasn't for me. I think I'm in the class of folks who just feel an, an intense amount of felt a lot of anxiety just thinking about what the LSAT would be. And so doing it during work allowed me to sort of segment it into my life in a more structured fashion than school would allow. Yeah. I mean, like, even though I did take the LSAT during undergrad and it worked out for me and I'm very thankful for that. I don't think it's always the best decision. I'm with you. I think school's a little bit too unpredictable, exam schedules, also just wanting to be young and have fun. <laughs> and I, I don't know how well the LSAT kind of fits into all of that. Seems like you took one gap year. Was it just the one gap year before law school? Had you taken two at that point? How did that work out? So I ended up taking two and I'm grateful for that. I knew that it also, it would help my chances, at least when it came to actually putting applications down. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of law schools like it when you take a little bit more time off. And I also knew it would just prepare me best for being in the classroom at law school, you know, because in law school, your grades, they take on a higher I guess, value of importance. And so you want to be in a position where you feel like, I think you're sort of ready to go toe to toe with your peers, not in any competitive sense, (laughs) but just to be sort of as as sharp and as prepared as you can be. So I thought taking, you know, those two years would make make that difference. And I think I think it did in a lot of ways. Obviously, I've been bed to law school. But one thing I know is that there's a sharp contrast in workload between undergrad and law school. I'm guessing as a paralegal, there was a lot of work involved with that. I know I'm sure some people are listening, maybe are interested in in being a paralegal. Before we jump into the like, can you talk to me a little bit about that? What's that like being a paralegal? Well, it's a lot of rote activity, I think, for anyone. The difference, (laughs) being a paralegal is not a a sort of one size fits all experience. Your work is extremely dependent on the practice area you're in. You know, are you at a big law firm? Are you at a local law firm, you know, in a smaller town? Are you as working as a paralegal in a public service organization? So your experience is going to be pretty manifestly distinct based on where you decide to go. But I do think a common thread throughout all is that, you know, it can just be, it's enriching. You get to be close. You get to see how great attorneys work and how they communicate and what good writing looks like. So those, Mm -hmm. I think, are the valuable parts of it. On the downside, though, it's just a little bit, you know, it just doesn't have quite the thrill that you might expect it to. (laughs) You know, you're not you're not necessarily being deployed for your creative thinking skills mm. and maybe not able to exercise your your mind as much as you would prefer and you know one thing i think a lot of folks believe that having some in the same way that you don't need a ton of pre-law experience in undergrad i think it, the same is true of postgrad as well it's a nice way to flag to law schools that 
hey, I am interested in the law and I'm not just making an insane career pivot because mm-hmm. I don't know what to do with my life. Oh my God, you're outing me right now. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's not a necessary or a sufficient condition, I think. Oh my I'm wording it correctly. Good. He got the <laughs> yeah, memo. <laughs> I, know, I know. That's one, one trick in law school is never, ever, ever talk about the LSAT. Never say sufficient and necessary condition. Just don't. You will get so many groans in your life and <laughs> oh definitely never God. bring up your LSAT score or you'll just, just don't do it. It's a cardinal sin. That kind of brings us back to the LSAT then. How did it start for you? Yeah, so I thought starting out, I I planned to study for about three to four months. I really wanted to keep the LSAT's grip on my life as limited as possible. (laughs) And I started out, it was, things were great. You know, I started out as a strong RC and LR scorer. And like many folks, Logic Games was just something that felt like a new language to me and one that had to be take some time to be mastered. But ultimately, my journey ended up being a lot longer and more convoluted than I anticipated, as I think the same is true for many folks, broadly speaking, across the LSAT universe. And But yeah, so I went through a lot of fluctuations in each section. So, you know, there would be months where Logic Games became a strength for me. And all of a sudden I was scoring like woefully low in RC and kind of all over the place in LR. And so it ended up being a year until I got the score that I wanted. Like many folks, I had sort of, you know, planned to get all my LSAT's done and all my application materials sort of ready to go by September of the year before I planned to start law school. And like many folks, those plans, you know, didn't go the way I wanted them to. I took the January LSAT of the year that I actually applied to law school. So I got my scores back in February and that's when I submitted all my materials. So it's, it was a little bit chaotic, but Again, it all it all worked out because, you know, at the end of the day, like we all said, <laughs> plays a really big role. And so once you kind of have that score, it's you can feel a lot better about sending all your stuff in. For sure. Yeah. So how many times did you end up taking the LSAT? So I was a three-time test taker, regrettably. I suffered a drop in my second score. So, mm. you know, a lot of folks expect sort of a linear progress. You know, just the more times you take it, you're going to score a few points higher than you thought. And I think at the end of the day, there was a there was a nine-point gap between my second and my third LSAT mm-hmm. test. So, you know, this is just to show that, you know, you can you can have some pretty wide swings and that the the growth process is not, you know, it's not linear. That's something I try to tell students all the time is that it's not linear. And you kind of you really have to remind yourself to to trust the process for lack of a better term. It's also hard too how you know, you take the LSAT and it's really just one data point. If, if they really wanted to test your true capabilities at the time, they would have everyone take 10 LSATs in a row and, and, and average out. <laughs> well, no, it's true, though, and, and average out those scores. Of course, that's unrealistic. And so they only administer one test. So that's another thing I, I try to remind people that, hey, even if you have one data point that is down, it doesn't mean you're, you're getting worse at the test. You're, you're definitely substantially better than where mm-hmm. you began. When you did begin, though, what were you scoring at? I know you mentioned how RC and LR, you had a little bit more comfort with to begin than maybe sure. something like LG. What was that initial PT like? Was it a bit of a, a shock for you? Well, I was shocked because it went it went great. I mean, I scored, I think it was a 163 on my first diagnostic. Oh, wow. Okay, beast. That and- hurts my feelings. God. 
Oh, I don't want to hear it, Asta. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I had a minus zero on RC somehow and a minus... Do you four. think that was the English in history? Like your English in history experience? I think, well, I think that, and I think I just, a lot of RCs, just vibes, and I didn't really, I wasn't, I wasn't overthinking things, right? I think I was going yeah. a lot of instincts and that serves you well at the start. So it's kind of easy to do RC at the start because you've got no stakes, nothing to lose. And yeah, and then I ended up you know, scoring in the higher 160s in a, after a few months. And, you know, my goal was to just get in the low 170s. And I kept trying to sort of crack through and it, it never worked. And then, you know, RC got down to almost as much as like minus six, minus seven on the regular. So I really had a lot of swings in, in all categories. LR was something that was more consistent. And I think the big the big leap was just getting that RC down really consistently. And then like anybody hoping to score in that higher category, shaving that logic games down to, you know, minus one, minus two consistently. I think it's really interesting that you say that your RC strategy for a while was just vibes, instincts, right? Gut feelings, because that's something I tell my students all the time when they're scoring inconsistently on RC. I'm like, okay, well, what's, what's the game plan? Like, what are we thinking when we go into the RC section? And usually it's like, oh, like whatever feels right. I'm just hoping for the best. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, if you don't have a set plan, if you're not doing the same thing, every time you go into an RC section, you are not going to get the same score every time you go into an RC section. And so even for me, when I was studying, I would go from like a minus two on a good day to like a minus 15 on a bad day. And there was no rhyme or reason to it. It's just because my strategy was read and hope for the best. Right. So I, I totally get that. Something I tell my students all the time. So that is very reaffirming. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. You just have to. It doesn't really. It does matter a little bit what your strategy is. But so long as there is something that where you're actively exercising your mind and not just sort of glazing your eyes over the text, you know, that makes all the difference. Absolutely. What did your study schedule look like initially? Yeah. So I think a lot of, especially paralegals and big law struggle with this because the workload is, is pretty, can be pretty intense, but Early on, I think I'd probably have do one to two hours in the morning because that was when my mind felt most awake. And like a lot mm -hmm. of people, I can't I can't really do much studying after work. Like I think my brain just turns to mush. So and that <laughs> yeah. that was pretty consistent for me throughout. Yeah, no, that, that, that's very wise. Knowing when your your mind is at its best is is a great time to spend studying. Unfortunately, yeah. I did want to ask. So you took the test three times. And you ended in January. Was there a huge change in the way that you studied in between each of those takes? Did you reinvent the wheel every time you went to go back and restudy? What did that kind of look like? So I think the biggest mistake I made between my first and my second was I, I really didn't change the strategy up, which sometimes that's fine. You know, I think like Henry said, like you can have the same strategy and score differently on different tests, depending on tons of variables beyond your control. I think the big, the big change for me between my second and my third test was learning to trust PTs and what they're telling you. You know, I think for a lot of folks, honestly, in any score range, you know, you say you want to score a 168. And, you know, I think for a lot of folks, they start scoring in the mid 160s. And they're like, okay, you know, like, I think it's within reach, right? I'm, you might have a PT or two that that actually hits your target score, even though the majority of them are hitting in that just a bit lower range. And I think I took a similar approach, right? I wanted to score in the low 170s. I really wasn't hitting that very much in my PTs, but I was, you know, it was in range, you know, it was always like, okay, if I just had gotten, you know, these two logic games questions, right. And not made this simple error in LR, I would have been fine. But I think after that second flop, I guess <laughs> it, was, it was a flop error for me. And it was, it was crushing, <laughs> right? Because 
you know, we throw around like, oh yeah, I took it three times. Like each time was itself a, a difficult and challenging mental experience for me. But I think after that second one, I thought, you know, I have to stop expecting miracles and stop expecting things to swing my way on the LSAT. You know, I, I, I sort of bared down on my strategy. I developed an RC strategy where I didn't have one before. I started paying attention more to my weak question types in LR specifically. So, you know, I decided to turn my weaknesses into strengths by just sort of hammering out those kinds of questions. But I think the, the biggest one for me was just finally accepting that my PT was probably going to be a very strong indicator of what I was going to get on test day. And so forcing myself to sort of like trust that and bring that up and not just staking all my hope on test day and, you know, having the luck go my way. And I think that's a mistake a lot of folks make and it's an un understandable one. But, you know, the PTs are right at the end of the day. Regrettable <laughs> as that may be. Yeah. yeah. People rarely rise to the occasion. It's far more often you, you sink to your lowest level of training. So I think that was a pretty, pretty good, pretty good take. I would love to get a little bit into each section before we talk about the post LSAT experience. In terms of LR, which tends to be my focus, did you find there was a click moment? And what was that if there was one? Uh, it has to be prephrasing. Yeah, I think mm. we say it all the time as tutors, and it's so annoying to students. But, <laughs> but just being in that sort of offensive mindset where you're I love constantly it. anticipating what's going to happen next. That makes all the difference. Yeah. That's as simple as that, I think. Yeah. yeah. No, I 100% I, nice. I agree. Uh, you know, the, the test writers, they're they're going to try and bait you with answer choices if you don't have a preface going in. So, so trusting yourself and your preface is, is a really good guide. For, uh, sure. for, for LG, do you have any any tips for people? Oh, goodness. Do a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do no. lots of games all Grind. the time. Do a lot. <laughs> Yeah, I think the, the big thing is, I think you have to play the mental game with yourself and you can't go into test day, you know, knowing that like, or just hoping that a certain kind of game is not going to be there, right? I think a lot of folks are like, ah, oh, man, in out games just aren't me, but I crush the logic games, you know, elsewise. It's like that, mm -hmm. that doesn't matter, right? Because on yeah. test day, you have to expect that those things are going to show up. And if you're banking on that hope, then I think your mental game is just not going to be strong, right? Because you're just going to have that worry about, you know, whether the, that one particularly trickery, what's the word? The adjective trick, tr trick, tricky. Yeah. <laughs> tricky. <laughs> How many yeah. all sat tutors does it take yeah, to get yeah. to the word Jeez. tricky? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, if you're banking on that, I think you're you sort of you've already lost. Even if you don't, even if you get lucky and don't get that in out game, I think you know you should feel like your you know your skills are comprehensive and there's not there's not a game they can't throw at you that's gonna throw you off. Yeah, that's really solid advice. And then what about we've kind of already talked about RC a little bit, but you know what was that strategy that finally stuck for you? Just outlining. Like I think there's a ton of science behind the idea that you need to put things in your own words to understand them. So, you know, even for my students who, who don't like outlining, you know, writing things down paragraph by paragraph summaries of, of what happened, at least in your head, trying to sort of get at what the, the basic message is and to put that in your own words. Because I, I really think that's the only way that things actually sink in in your short-term memory. And, you know, the test is the test of speed and, and you need to be able to tap into that short-term memory and have that short-term memory accurately reflect what's in the passage. So, yeah, 
And I think putting things into your own words is the best way to keep that memory sharp. Yeah, oh, 100%, awesome. 100%. I think you're touching on it's great too. how whether or not you outline really the, the purpose of outlining is to force that interaction and, and force you to, to think about the passage. I'll, I'll tell my clients just like, do you agree with it too? Mostly just yeah. to get them whether or not they do really doesn't matter. It's more about forcing yourself to, to really like <laughs> some, you know, build a relationship with the passage of some kind, as you said, so you can commit that to your short term memory. Yeah, I'm totally with you. Well, cool. Let's move on to law school. How's it been? What's it been like? What do you enjoy? What do you not enjoy? What's the tea? Yeah. Well, there's always tea at Yale (laughs) Law School for sure. I can't spill it all. Yeah. (laughs) uh, You'll know when you get here. Someone told me the other day that I sounded like a university pamphlet because Oh, I just really, I really do enjoy law school. You know, we had the the privilege of not having grades the first semester, which certainly colored my experience in a better way. You know, I think one L one L can be can be very challenging, but yeah, I think it's it's so wonderful to go, especially if you're working beforehand, to go somewhere where you're once again valued for your just ability to think, to think creatively, and to engage in discussions about theoretical topics that can be really exciting, you know, and I think one of the the most fun parts of law schools is you get here and you encounter topics that you wouldn't have previously thought might interest you like civil procedure or, you know, what is a contract? So <laughs> it's really fun to just kind of like take these totally weird new things, quirky things, right? Law professors themselves are kind of, they can be a little bit odd and quirky in a fun way. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, and it's it's just a blast too. And you, especially if you go from a nine to five job, you know, law schools, like your time is very unstructured and that creates a lot of pressure to sort of always be on, but it, it gives you a lot of freedom as well to sort of pick and choose what you're going to dedicate yourself to. I think a lot of mistakes that law students make and people thinking about what law school is like also make is that you just have to be working 12 hours a day, burying your head in each, you know, book, reading all the cases and whatnot. And, you know, we hope we can do those things, but at the end (laughs) of the day, like you're a human and like you can, you can live a human life and do fun things with your time. As long as you're smart about just prioritizing what matters to you, you know, you're not going to be able to sort of crush every class and build a great relationship with every professor. But what you can do is, is decide that certain discrete topics pique your interest for whatever reason, and you can get a really enriched experience by just sort of focusing on those and taking care of yourself as a living, breathing human being in the spare time you have. I think that's really important for future 1Ls to be hearing. Because when I think law school, that's the exact same thing that I think, right? I'm just going to be reading for 12 hours a day. I will never leave the library and fun is kind of out of the picture. But what's kind of the most fun experience you've had in your 1L year? Oh, Man, I struggles think, to think of anything fun. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> yeah, I yeah. kind of called you out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ooh, <laughs> gosh. You know, I think we had the privilege of doing clinics our first year, and I think that was by far the most enriching experience. And I think most law schools nowadays have clinics in some form, some more than others. So definitely scope that out. But for me, I'm a very sort of I like to be on the ground. I like to sort of like be in the weeds of how things are actually playing out in the real world. So. I was working on the housing clinic last semester and I got to represent, you know, real clients and work on real legal pleadings and contribute to things like negotiations and whatnot. So that was a blast. It's amazing. Like you don't, a lot of people think you get to law school and you just do three years of grinding in the books and that's what it is. But law school nowadays is much more focused on building your skills as a practitioner, right? Because at the end of the day, we're we're preparing to be litigators in the real world and you get to do so much 
much of that while in law school. And I don't know, I, I found it enthralling. That's awesome. Was there anything that, you know, you took a couple years off before going back to school? Was there anything that you wish you had better prepared for or had just seen coming? You know, what would you tell yourself going back before your 1L started? Oh, gosh, you don't need to brief every case. You don't need to know. <laughs> you don't need to know the facts front to back of every single case you read in con law and civil procedure and contracts and criminal law. The LSAT, one thing that the LSAT teaches you is that there's not enough time in the world to spend as much time as you would like to on everything before you. And I think a skill that the LSAT teaches you and one that you know, I wish I had applied more my 1L is that you kind of have to be ruthless with your prioritization of time. And there's nothing lost in that, right? Like everything is gained by what by the choices we make about what we decide to focus our energies on. And so I think the first and last mistake 1L students make, including myself, is that you know, you should read every case front to back, like use things, you know, there are tools out there that summarize cases for you. There are outlines there. Use the help available to you to save the time that you can. And you'll become a much better student by doing that rather than just just sort of reassuring yourself that you're doing everything by actually trying to do everything, which no one can. Yeah. Wow. That's a really, I know I say that all the time when it comes to LSAT, but never thought about how that actually applies to law school, but that makes perfect sense. Was there anything else about the LSAT experience or studying for the test or the test itself that you think kind of prepared you for law school in that way? I think RC is great. RC gets a bad rep. I think Asa, you and I agree on this. Love uh, RC. Love RC. But I think that the skills there transfer so well into reading a case, right? Because, you know, you could read a case front to back, you know, logical order, whatever you want, however the justice or judge has ordered it. Or you can be a little bit ruthless and, you know, be really picky with the parts you read or focus your energies on certain aspects of the things you read. So I think RC in the way that it prepares you to really cut down on what's important is the most transferable thing to law school. And, you know, now actually, you know, doing a little bit of law practice in the summer, I see that it transfers as well to the actual day-to-day of an attorney. Very nice. Well, I think that's a natural endpoint. If you have any any final words, oh, what do you want to leave our listeners with? I know I, I couldn't think of any, so I'm, I'm passing the ball to you. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, so much pressure. You know, I think just don't let the LSAT control your life. It's an important part of your life, and it deserves a lot of respect and time, but also you're a human. As soon as you go to law school, you realize like none of that really mattered. You know, it does help you, but at the end of the day, it's going to be one part of your life when you look back on and, you know, you're going to become an attorney one day and you're going to be a great, great attorneys are not made or determined by the LSAT. They're determined by the kind of people they are and the work ethic they have. And so it's just one little bit of your life. Don't let it control you. And you're going to be a great attorney no matter how it goes. Hmm. I think it's a beautiful place to end. That was awesome. Thank you very much, Chad. I really Thank appreciate you. that. Chad, of course, not only an excellent law school student, an excellent LSAT taker, but also an excellent LSAT tutor. All right. Well, thank you, Chad. This is great. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Appreciate thank it. You. For more LSAT study tips, visit sevensage.com. See you next week.